Hi, and welcome to this episode of I've Got This Kid. I'm your host, Sharina Williams, licensed speech and language pathologist, homeschooling mom of two, wife of one, excited podcasting host, here to discuss everything speech, language play, development, homeschooling, and anything else that falls in between. Hey, y'all, listen up. If you haven't done so, join our community. I just love hearing from you guys. I love seeing pictures of your little sugars. They are so adorable. And most of them look like they still smell like cookies, which makes my life happy because mine no longer smell like cookies. If you want to join our community, I could be found on Facebook at Sharina Williams, licensed speech and language pathologist, Instagram at Sharina WSLP, or at I've got this kid underscore podcast. I could also be found on Twitter at Sharina William one. Share the podcast with a friend. If you have not done so, please, let's keep getting this going. Let's keep getting that feedback. Let's keep growing the community because we are better together. And you guys usually have some really great information. I love hearing from you all. The next thing that you guys can do is rate the show to join the community. We rate everything else. Rate the show. Tell me if you're enjoying it. Tell me what I can change. Tell me if there's a topic that you want to hear about to be covered because that's what I'm here to do. And finally, this ties into the last thing. Send in your questions. If you have a question, please ask. There's no such thing as a silly question, only a such thing as an unanswered question. And I'm usually 99% sure that if you have a question, somebody else has that same question. And so let's get these questions answered together, y'all. So we are continuing the what is it series, y'all. And so far we have covered what is a stuttering disorder? What is a speech sound disorder versus a delay? What is a voice disorder? What is a praxia? What is a preschool language disorder? What is a learning disability? And if you're asking or scratching your head, like, wait, what? You covered all that? Then you probably haven't tuned into all those episodes go ahead to the website, iheartspeechtherapy.com or find me on your favorite podcast station and you can catch up on all episodes. So today we are going to be covering part one. Yes, you heard me say part one of what is autism. You know, when I started researching, when I started just looking at stuff, When I started thinking about how I wanted to frame this episode, by the time I was done, I was like, there's no way I'm going to do a single episode on autism, talking about autism, because I feel like first we need to get on the same page, understanding what it is, understanding just the different parameters around it. And then next week, we're going to cover signs and symptoms. But today, I'm going to get us all hooked up, educated. Today, we're going to school, but in a good way. You're going to enjoy this learning because autism is one of those things that it is so prevalent. It happens in one in 54 kids across the globe. One in 54, right? That's pretty big odds. So that means out of every 100 kids, there's going to be at least two. That doesn't take much to get that ball rolling and that number to grow larger. If you think about it, most classrooms nowadays have between 25 and 30 kids. So if you have three classrooms put together, or we could say three and a half classrooms put together, then at least two of those sugars in that class 
will most likely have a diagnosis of autism. And so that's how prevalent it is. What's funny about this diagnosis is there's so much stigma around it. There's so much unknown around it. We know the word, but in a lot of ways, there's still a question mark because we've gotten kind of over the years fragmented information that doesn't necessarily cover the full scope of what it is, what it looks like, how to recognize it. And honestly, at the end of the day, what does that mean? And how as a world changer, can I get tooled up? So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to get you tooled up in that way. So definition, basic textbook, and everywhere my notes are coming from will be in our show notes today, y'all. So autism is a neurological disorder that affects social language, how we get along in the world, speech, sometimes nonverbal, and repetitive behaviors. Well, it's all in the meaning, stuff that you do over and over and over again. And because it's neurological, we can detect the signs pretty early. We're to the point now to where, in, even in infancy, we can kind of pick up on if little sugars are showing some signs. The earliest that I've honestly seen a diagnosis, um, probably 15 months, maybe a little bit earlier, um, just because there was a lot going on in particular with this sugar. And so we all kind of suspected what was happening. But even still, as early as like, 12 months, you can kind of start tracking and seeing some signs. Because remember, if you listen to the milestone series, then you know, between that 18 and 36 months is really when that social platform is being established. And because autism at the core of it impacts the social communication so much that we can kind of pick up on behaviors based on tracking what other little sugars have looked like over the years and kind of say, hey, we suspect. But what's really cool about autism and the diagnosis in general is that like anything else, if we detect it early and we're intentional as soon as something doesn't look right, feel right, smell right, then a lot of the stuff can be undone. And not just on the sugars part, on our part as well, how we interact, how we engage. Like there's a lot of great things that we can do to kind of ease things along. So back in the day with autism, I have to throw this in, and this isn't even in my notes, but this is like my geeky historical side coming out. They discovered autism, I believe like some of the first findings and recordings of this diagnosis happened during the war. World War II, I believe it was. It was either World War I, but I'm pretty sure it's World War II. If one of you world changers want to fact check me, please, by all means, go ahead and do so. But it was one of the wars. They started um, documenting and taking notes on this population of soldiers who were showing these signs and symptoms. And they just, it kind of kept snowballing from there. But that's like, I believe when some of the original documentation of autism came to light. The second funny thing about that is you have to think about 50 or 60 years ago, a lot of our kids who have any kind of mental disability or intellectual disability, 
any kind of diagnosis, anything that is outside of typically developing, our babies were institutionalized. They were locked away. This was only 60 years ago. It's just now that we're really able to do the research and understand a lot more, which is why we have so much information now. And so I I say all that to say the reason why we have so much information now is because over the past 60 years, we've really been tracking stuff down. But the first findings were during the war. And that's actually where a lot of diagnosis have been found. A lot of things are discovered out of all times during war because all kinds of research is going on during that time. Anyway, I digress. That was my nerdy little moment. I'm back, y'all. So autism in general, when they first really started documenting it, they documented it based on three different categories. You guys might have heard this before. Asperger's, PDD, NOS, and then just flat out autism. Asperger's, that was the category for the kiddos who were more high functioning. These are the ones who really academically were doing great. They may just have needed a little bit of support along the way with the social communication, the PDD and OS, not otherwise specified. That's pervasive developmental disorder. And that just means that stuff was happening along the way. That's the best way I know how to explain it. And then just flat out autism. Now it all just falls under one umbrella. It all falls in one umbrella. And the reason why they did that is because the trend, no matter whether you're talking about Asperger's, PDD, NOS, or autism, those same three characteristics, uh, social communication, speech, and repetitive behaviors are all impacted in some way, shape, form, or fashion. It just looks different in other sugars. And so it's considered a disorder, but not all cases fall on a specific side of the spectrum. That's why they call it a spectrum. If you think about a long ruler, right? If you look at a ruler, you have your one on one side, the number one, and you have a 12 on the other side. And in between that, there's all these numbers in between, right? And while we don't categorize autism by numbers, I look at it that way because it's either one on the low end or 12 if we're looking at like level of severity on as the high end, right? The more severe cases, maybe there's some cognition going on, maybe some mental retardation, maybe there's some accompanied other things going on. And I'm jumping a little bit ahead of the game, but just think of the word spectrum. Think of range, think of low end, middle, high end. And so in general, there is a range and some sugars definitely fall on that lower end, Some are more moderate and some are definitely on that higher end, right? And so if you're looking at that same ruler, one would be low end, six would be the middle, and that's the moderate. And then that 12 would be the severe, more of the high end of it. And so a lot of times it's not necessarily always just the diagnosis of autism. It's what comes along with the diagnosis of autism. And so when we're talking about like, well, what do you mean additional diagnosis? There's a lot of things that can come along with it, like ADD, ADHD, depression, sensory processing disorder, gastrointestinal disorders, seizures or sleep disorders. And I'm going to go back and break each of these down and how it can kind of play out if you have this diagnosis. So you think about it again, the core, and I'm gonna probably keep saying this over and over and over again, so we get it wrapped around our mind. Three areas affected within the realm of autism, speech, 
social language, and repetitive behaviors, right? Doing the same thing over and over again. So if you have a child who has maybe ADD, ADHD, or depression, those fall more under the mental health umbrella. And so you might have the child who presents as anxious or they appear emotionally unable to regulate themselves. They're either really happy or really sad. There's no in between. Or the ADHD, or excuse me, the ADD, like they can't quite get their bodies in the balance. They can't quite calm down. And it's something that's outside of their control. That falls outside of the realm of speech, repetitive behaviors. Now, it may make ADD, ADHD, and depression, it might heighten it because of repetition, right? That comes along with it, but it's usually not the cause of it. And then also the social communication. If I am a little bit more impulsive, if I'm a little bit more hyperactive, if I'm a little more X, then everything is kind of heightened in a way that is not always played out in the best way. And we really have to be intentional about tooling these sugars up who have these accompanied disorders, especially when we're talking about the mental health side of things. The next thing, sensory processing disorder. We did an episode on sensory processing disorder. Sensory processing disorder is the way that we perceive the world. We perceive the world through our five senses, right? If you listen to that episode, then you know it's through our, the things that we see, what we taste, what we smell, what we touch, how we hear. And so a lot of times sensory processing disorder, they're either, our sugars are either hypersensitive. That means that they are overly sensitive to the environment and everything's a little bit too much, or they're hyposensitive to where they need the input and they always feel like, and it always looks like they're going, going, going because they're never quite in the balance. That can have an impact on things in addition to GI disorders. Um, I said I was going to have an episode just on the brain and the gut, and that is coming up. It's coming through the pipeline, not quite yet, but we're gonna go deeper into how the brain and the gut are related A lot of times you probably have heard nowadays gluten-free diet, gluten this, gluten that, gluten this, gluten that. And most people are like, well, what do you mean gluten? And that's just a hoax and that's just a thing and that's just a whatever. And it's not. It's really for some of our little sugars who have the diagnosis of autism, the way that their body processes food may be different than the way that our body processes that same food. And so taking away gluten for some families has been extremely successful over the years to manage their mental health, keeping things in order, keeping them able to attend, keeping them able to focus and learn. And so we will get deeper into that, not today, but down the line. The final thing that can accompany autism is seizures or sleep disorders. Again, this doesn't happen to everybody but it can be something that impacts their ability to be able to thrive in a way that they need to thrive. If your brain is constantly having these little tremors due to the seizures or the the seizure is the tremor, then it can definitely impact thinking, reasoning, memory. It can impact all areas of how the brain functions. And so even language and speech, it just depends on where the seizures are taking place. And this doesn't happen with all the sugars that have the diagnosis, but it does happen to some. Sleep disorders is another area that I hear about a lot and discuss with parents a lot 
because the brain sometimes has a hard time just making that transition and shutting down. And you have to think about a sugar who likes repetition. And so it's hard if you like repetition to make those transitions and to shift from one thing to the next thing because it's just harder for them to do. And so again, that's a way that we have to tool them up. Another area, and we'll get into it, and this is not a disorder at all, but giftedness and autism can go hand in hand. And we will talk about that later. And this is the crazy thing about this, y'all. Just like you can have autism by itself, the diagnosis of autism, you don't necessarily have these accompanying disorders. Sometimes it's just the difficulties with speech, repetitious behavior, and social communication. You don't always have a sugar who has an extra something else going on with it. And you can have any one of those disorders without having autism. So they don't always just come together. They can come together. We've seen that they come together, but they can also be diagnosed independent of one another. A lot of times the world changers who are coming into my office and are seeing me the first time and we're suspecting red flag behaviors are going on or they got a recent diagnosis, I'm usually that first person that they talk to. And the reason I am that first person to talk to is because I subspecialize in early intervention. So I'm seeing them when they're super young. And so a big part of what I do, which I love to do, as you guys know by now, is educate families on what to expect, what to be thinking about based on their situation, based on what their sugar is presenting, because every sugar is different. No matter what, every sugar is different. And the question that does come up is, what is their quality of life going to be like? What kind of quality of life are they going to have? Am I going to have this sugar forever? Like, what is this really going to look like? And I always say, if we're unsure at that time, sometimes we know it honestly depends because again, it's a spectrum. Think about the ruler. We have the low end, we have the middle, and we have the high end based on level of severity, low severity to high severity, right? And so it honestly depends on A, what sugar presents with, B, if there's accompanying disorders and see if sugar is motivated. Okay, there's a D, y'all, how you're tooling the sugar up. Yes, that matters. Because the more we're able to adjust and adapt to reframe and reshape things, the easier it becomes for us to work in unison. You gotta remember, social communication is a big part of this diagnosis. And so they're not necessarily wired the way that we're wired. They're neurodivergent in their own right. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that we have to adjust the way that we think, do, and act with them. And so we have to think about if we're asking these questions, quality of life, what's it going to be like? What are their thinking and problem solving skills like? Are they acquiring new learning? Are they trying to problem solve? Are they falling apart every single time? And I'm not talking about like the cute two-year-old tantrum. Okay, there's no cute tantrum. Let me stop lying, y'all. Let's say like the difference between like the tantrum and falling apart over everything that doesn't go their way, but they're not necessarily getting that grit or resilience, right? That can definitely 
be a telltale sign of what we need to do, how we need to react and how we need to reframe the way that we are reacting when thinking and problem solving skills are not necessarily being nurtured the way that they need to be. And they're not necessarily maturing in the direction that we would want them to go. And again, for some sugars, remember I said that giftedness and autism can go hand in hand as well. It's not uncommon at all. So that's where you have like your highly skilled, highly focused kiddos who are just, you know, those gifted thinkers. Whereas on the other hand, you have the other ones who need a little bit of support. Maybe there's also a little bit of mental retardation that comes along with that. Yes, it can happen. And so if we're not putting our sugars in a position to where we're constantly challenging that and we're shying away from it, then yeah, that can be a telltale sign. Another thing that will kind of determine or be something that we look at over time, this is something that we're paying attention to, not just once, but throughout their life, the activities of daily living. How are they getting through the day? Are they showing awareness? Are they demonstrating the ability to be able to get from one thing to the next? If we're providing tools for this sugar, are they able to rise to the occasion and start, you know, working through those tools to get them from point A to point B? Are they doing it safely? Are they doing, you know, are they understanding what's going on in the world around them? Because that is super important. I mean, think about it paying attention to the water versus the bleach in the in the can, right? Like little things like that, that we so take for granted that a lot of my parents who have sugars who are on more of the severe side, these are honest concerns. And so we have to think about quality of life in a way to where not necessarily what is it going to look like? It's more so of what are we going to do? What are we going to do to make sure that opportunities are arising So sugar can maximize his or her ability to be amazing at whatever it is their purpose to be. And so you have to look at each effect in their own right, in general, when looking at autism, right? And so I've been saying it all along. By now, you guys should know it. We're looking at social communication. We're looking at their speech and we're looking at the repetitious behaviors and how much it's taking over their day. You can have a speech disorder absent of a diagnosis of autism, right? You don't, the the two don't go together. And so some of our sugars who have speech delay, language delay, it's autism at the core because it's difficulties relating to the world. Maybe speech may not be used for the intention of communicating. And no, I'm not getting speech and language confused. I'm talking about speech in general when we're using and acquiring the sounds to make words. And so you might have a sugar who has very limited speech sounds or they're using primarily their, the sounds are coming from their throat or they're using sounds where you're hearing like, "Mm," or a different kind of noises that are not necessarily characteristic of any language, right? And so you'll hear them making sounds and you'll hear them making words, but they may, again, not be a word that's familiar to your language, whether that's English or Spanish or Mandarin or Cantonese or Urdu or whatever language it is. And so that's one thing that we really want to pay attention to. If we have a little sugar, and at this point, we're talking about the little sugars, if we're seeing that they are not acquiring sounds 
and they're not necessarily using sounds to communicate with us. And that means that they're taking that sound, using that sound and looking at you and trying to communicate something, not looking off over in the corner, not off looking down at their toys, not off looking at something else, not avoiding eye contact with you, but looking directly at you and trying to use sounds. If they're not picking up those sounds and those sounds are not turning into words, they can avoid using language and making that transition from speech sound to language. Think about it. Babies have speech sounds first. The speech sound turns into language. They use the crying as the language first, and then it makes the shift to language words that are recognizable because we've been amazing models for them for those first 12 months, right? And so what you might see with our little sugar who has difficulties with communicating because there may be an underlying diagnosis of autism that hasn't been diagnosed yet is that they're only speaking to you for wants and needs if it's highly motivating, right? And so I know that that's heavy. I'm going to break it down one more time. Speech, sounds. Sounds turn to language. Language turns into communication back and forth, right? And if our sugars are not necessarily picking up those sounds and acquiring new sounds and those sounds aren't turning into language, then they probably will not communicate with us. Or on the other hand, the speech turns into language and then they're only using the language when they want something from you, not to have that interaction. Remember that toddler time is really the time where they're trying to showcase everything they know. And if you don't see sugar showcasing everything they know during that time, then you probably want to start thinking about talking to your pediatrician because this is the time that they're trying to show off everything. For our sugars who are nonverbal, they may not even start picking up sounds or they may only have sounds and limited mobility with their mouth and may not show any kind of desire to turn sounds into words. Those are our nonverbal sugars. And it does happen. It's just recognizing the signs. And when we see our sugars who are nonverbal, this can range as well. Everything's a range, y'all. For some sugars, they literally are devoid of language. And for other sugars, it might be select mutism. And that's when the sugar uses their language only sometimes, only if they want to only when they're extremely comfortable, only when they're in a place to where it's their comfort zone and it's their safe place, but maybe not when strangers come around, maybe not in other places. And this definitely happens. And so we want to make sure that we're watching this. And it's definitely different than just being a shy kid who kind of hides behind you, but then they eventually warm up these sugars usually don't warm up. There's like no indication that they are going to warm up or it takes a long time for them to warm up. They don't like a lot of change. They don't like a lot of people in their space. It's usually more than one thing kind of showing that this is going on in that way. And so this is what it'll look like for these sugars. You might see for these, these little ones who are a little bit sluggish with gaining speech or nonverbal, they may use a word once, but then you may never hear it again. They may be an early talker, but then lose language. Or they may use language only to get the wants and needs met. And I mentioned that before. They may resist using language at all. You might beg them to use language. They'll come up to you, talk to you, but then you don't hear from them again. 
or they'll use sounds only for vocal stimulation. I talked a little bit about that. Or they'll attempt to pay attention to other things or they won't demonstrate a whole lot of attention when you're talking to them, which then impacts their ability to acquire new language. The attention or the focus or the willingness <laughs> might be taking over in those cases. And how do we help? We can definitely help these sugars in these situations. We can provide visual images for with concrete words. And, and that simply means that we can either like show a picture or we can put labels around the house or we can provide information in smaller chunks instead of giving really long drawn out sentences. When communicating with them, we can provide information in smaller chunks to make sure that they are gaining the information. And remember, when we are using smaller chunks, we're giving them a model to imitate the words. Rather than giving them three or four words or a full-on sentence, maybe we're giving them one or two intentional words. We only want to speak to these sugars face-to-face because we want to make sure that they're paying attention to us. We want to avoid asking them to repeat because remember, for these little sugars, if we suspect that a diagnosis of autism going on, then the last thing that we want to do is continue to ask them to repeat. We actually don't want to do that to anybody. And the final thing we want to do is provide a language-rich home, which means that we're reading daily, we're singing daily, we're having words around the house. I mentioned that earlier. When my sugars were little, I had labels everywhere with words. I knew they couldn't read them, but I had words everywhere because I knew eventually that we would get to a place to where they would start turning and recognizing the sounds from the ABC song into real words that they would eventually have to understand how to use. And so we had them everywhere. The next area that can be impacted is the social language. Social language is the other piece that could be impacted. That means that I talk, you listen, you talk, I listen. And it happens in so many different ways. We use our language to communicate with the world around us. We use it to greet. We use it to comment on stuff. We use it to protest. We use it to question things. We use it to request things. And so our sugars may not always show interest in a conversational partner. Maybe again, they're using their language by themselves or they're more content on being alone or they're just outright ignoring you and pretending like you don't even exist unless again, they want something and it's highly motivating for them to get it. And then after that, they're gone. They may use language inappropriately or out of context. So it might be a phrase or something that was catchy that they heard on TV and you might hear them saying it over and over and over again. And that's that repetitious behavior that you see or you hear to where maybe like they're watching the movie Cars. And I don't know why this example keeps coming in my head where Lightning McQueen on the first Cars, not the second Cars or the third Cars, when he'd be like ka-chang or ka-chow or whatever he was doing. But you might hear the little sugar using something like that or another phrase that was super catchy to them. And it may not be within the context of the conversation going on. And you might just hear them saying it and using it over and over and over again. And even after you acknowledge them, they're still using it over and over and over again. So that that's another one. They may imitate without real meaning. And this happens because usually sugar is unsure how to use language. 
They're trying to figure it out. And you kind of see the wheels turning because in a lot of cases, our little sugars are not always necessarily trying to isolate. It's just the uncertainty of how to interact with the world around them. And so it's just a little bit easier to be alone. And so that imitating without real meaning, you might hear them say a word that they heard you say, and it's probably some word that you wouldn't even expect them to use some multisyllabic word. And you're just like, why are you using that? And, and you kind of look at them and, and it might be even interpreted as, oh my gosh, you're so smart. You can use language, especially if it's a sugar who's not using a lot of language and you hear them pull out like this big old grand word. You're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. But in reality, they're just trying to figure out how to use language. And it's a word that they picked up from you and they're not quite sure how to use it. And that's what happens there. And the final thing that you might hear is that they may use language only when items are highly desirable. And you've heard me mention this a few times during this episode. And when I say highly desirable, that means that they're only coming to you for stuff on their own terms and they're reluctant to imitate or respond to you. And they're reluctant to respond to the conversational partner when the conversational partner comes and tries to communicate with them. Maybe they go away. Maybe they act like they're focusing on something else. Maybe they avoid eye contact with you. Like there's all kinds of things that can happen in those moments to where sugar is just totally avoiding having that interaction. And it could be for a number of reasons, which leads me to the next thing, the sensory processing disorder piece. And while I've mentioned the social language, the social communication, and the speech and the repetitious behaviors, the repetitious behaviors can happen across each category I'm talking about. It can happen with the speech to where the same behavior happens over and over and over again. Maybe they're using the same sounds. It can also happen with the social language. Again, maybe you're hearing the same words, the perseverations, and it's happening over and over again. It can also happen during play to where you're seeing the same play behavior over and over and over again. And there's a lot of reluctance to change. And sometimes it definitely has to do with the sensory processing. In a lot of cases, it has to do with how they're interpreting the world around them. And that sensory processing Again, it's how we perceive things through our eyes, how we see things, how we smell things, how we taste things, how we touch things and how we hear things. And our sugars can either be oversensitive to their environment or undersensitive to their environment. And they may be seeking input or they may be avoiding input. And these areas, whatever area is impacted, it can have an effect on their attention and their focus, and their learning, and their play, and their communication skills. Because if you're always either seeking something or avoiding something, especially at that age, and it's taking over your day, it's really hard to keep up with the language boom if you're always trying to avoid or deflect or get something else or get to something else. And so for our sugars who are demonstrating these characteristics, that's where occupational therapy comes into play. It's super important to reach out to an occupational therapist, not just for writing and things like that, but for those sensory strategies, because they are wonderful at that. And that leads me to my next point. How do I relate to my sugar that may not appear to be interested in me? If any of the senses are being impacted to the point to where sugar cannot pay attention, 
They won't focus. They won't listen. They're sensitive to the sound around us. They don't like the lights. They don't like the vacuum. They don't like this food texture. They don't like the way that stuff feels on their body. Maybe it's the clothes or the shoes and they're refusing to wear them. All of those things are sensory processing. They feel like it looks like they never will sit down. And again, listen to my episode on sensory processing disorder to give you more information. But that definitely ties into where my sugar appears. It, it appears they're just not interested in me or they only want me on their own terms. And this is where we have to think about the demands that are being placed on these sugars. This is where it's totally different from our sugars who don't have the diagnosis of autism because the demands that we're placing on them and a demand simply means like what we want them to do. That's like the, the nice way of what it is we want them to do or need them to do. And demands are placed on all of us all day. We get up in the morning, we demand that they brush their teeth. We demand that they make their bed. We demand that they wash up and put on their clothes. We demand that the clothes go in the hamper. We demand that they come downstairs and or come to the kitchen and eat breakfast. We demand that after they eat their breakfast, they put their, their plate in the sink and their spoon in the sink and probably rinse it off. We demand from there that they get their shoes on and get out the door. We demand that they go to school or they go to the computer for Zoom school or they go to the homeschool area or whatever it is. There are always demands placed on our sugars, whether we realize it or not. And sometimes demands can be way too much for these sugars. The world is way too demanding. They're trying to get through the first thing. They're trying to make sense of that first thing, because in a lot of cases, they kind of want to do their own thing. Again, it's that avoidance, just not knowing what to expect. And that's, again, where the repetitious behavior comes into play, because if I know what to expect every single time, the same effect is going to come out, then I'm going to gravitate to that versus gravitating to whatever it is you have in front of me that I'm not quite sure how I'm going to feel about it, if I want to deal with it and how I'm going to react to it. And so we have to think about the demands that we're placing on them, what we really want out of them versus us just asking them to get through the day or even reframing the way that we are, are presenting demands to them. And so maybe instead of giving them three-step directions, maybe we're giving them one-step directions at a time. Maybe we're giving them visuals. Maybe we're giving them some support until they're comfortable with those processes. Or maybe we are becoming a lot more a lot more clear about this is going to happen now and this is what's going to happen next. And then you can get to what it is that you want after that. Because when we're not clear, it can make it really hard for our sugars who are trying to make sense of the world around them to be compliant with us. And then it looks like all of a sudden we have a bad child when they're not a bad child. We just need to give a little bit more information to kind of help them through that moment and honestly not be so demanding. Decide where we want to make those demands and decide where we can flex a little bit and kind of let them let them have a little bit of of leeway, because in, in certain cases, they need that leeway in order to meet you where you are, just like you need that demand to be met to meet them where they are. And so a lot of times it's the demands that make it really difficult for parents to connect with these sugars, but with just a few tweaks, you're changing their world. You're changing not only their world, but also your world. So think about that if you suspect that, or if that's something that you already know your sugar has the diagnosis and you're like, well, what do I do? Think about some of those demands being placed. Compromise. Compromise definitely falls 
under the demand category, right? What is a deal breaker? What absolutely has to happen? You know, what absolutely are you not going to let them get away with? Like, what is the deal breaker in your house? And that's when you and your parenting partner have to talk about that. And if you guys are in a multi-generational home, that's when everybody comes together and you guys have to discuss as the parenting partners, what the deal breakers are. Like sugar cannot get away with X no matter what, but sugar can X, Y, Z. And this is so key because remember, we're trying to convince the sugar that we want them in our world. We don't want them to resist everything we're presenting to them as we don't want them to resist everything like vice versa. We don't want to resist everything they're presenting to us. And so we have to decide what those deal breakers are and how, again, we can meet each other halfway. Because in their case, they're really trying to be convinced that our world is just as significant as where they are in their world. Like, why do you want me to do this? I'm not quite sure. I don't understand. I don't know what you want from me. And so it's easier for me to kind of self-isolate. It has nothing to do with love or like. It just is a coping skill. Got to think about social communication in general is what we use to navigate through the world. And if that's the hardest thing for you to navigate through and demands are always being placed on you, then yeah, after a while, you're probably going to isolate or want to be alone. And so you have to think about those things. Like, what are you willing to compromise on? Are you going to compromise on food? Are you going to compromise on clothes? Are you going to compromise on play? Are you going to compromise on communication? Like, what are those things that you're willing to do? Like, maybe they're not going to use three to five words with you, but one to two really good, strong words to get the point across. Or maybe during play, they don't want to do it your way. Maybe they want to do it X, Y, Z, as long as it's safe and you guys are both kind of flexing to meet each other halfway. I don't see a problem with that. Clothes, same thing. I know that clothes is usually a big issue because again, the way that they interpret the, the material is different than the way that we interpret the material. And we don't know how it feels, especially when they're young. It's not until they become much older that they're able to express to us how the material makes them feel. And so we really want to be sensitive to that. And it's really hard to be sensitive to something that you don't quite understand, especially when it's with a little sugar, because they don't necessarily have the tools to express to you what it is they need. And they just kind of come off as this cantankerous little sugar when they're not really trying to be. They're really just trying to figure things out and cope in a way that's appropriate. So you got to think about it. If they're already having a hard enough time within themselves, within their own body, within their own person, trying to make sense of the world around them, and then we're coming at them harshly and abruptly because they won't play by our rules, what do you think you know, that does to them. So we have to be proactive about this. That's why we don't wait and see world changers, because a lot of this stuff just takes some simple tweaks to kind of change the trajectory of how you respond to them and how they respond to you. And my final point of the day, what are you doing to meet them where they are? Oh my gosh, us adults, we like to control everything whether we like it or not, in some ways, we just like our coffee the way we like our coffee, y'all. That's is just point blank and simple. Like we just want stuff our way. And especially with them, because life is happening with us and we have work. We have 
adult learners who are in school. We have spouses. We have other kids. We have a schedule. By golly, we have a schedule. And sometimes their needs don't necessarily fit into that schedule. It don't fit all the time, especially if we don't know. And so we have to think about the areas that we are able to meet them where they are. And again, that comes up through play. That comes up through the way that we interact with them. It comes up through the way that they show their attachment to us and how we show that to them. And it also comes through with our expectations. If we are allowing sugar because they've rejected us 50 times, or if we are allowing this sugar to play by themselves and not allow ourselves to get into that play because we're like, they don't want me there in the first place, then we got to rethink what we're doing during that time. And if they're feeling toy insecure and don't want us touching their stuff or feel threatened, like you're going to take their little toys away because they feel that way sometimes. And so we have to provide those securities. Now, we may never think of it like that, but I guarantee like that is in a lot of cases what's happening during play. It's that toy insecurity of if you touch my toy, I'm never going to get it back or you're going to change it and I'm not going to like it. And it's just hard for me to flex for you. And I want it to go this way because just like you may want your coffee the same way that you want your coffee, they want their bottle the same way they want their bottle. They want it the way that they want it. And so that's where we have to meet them where they are. The interaction, how are we interacting with them? Are we only allowing them to interact with us on their terms? Are we overbearing or are we passive? How are we meeting them in between that? Super important. We have to make sure that through those attachments, or excuse me, those interactions, that everybody is getting balance. And that's what you want to look for when you're meeting them where they are. You want to find that balance to where it's not too much of them, not too much of you. And this honestly, this part kind of relates to all parents with their sugars, right? We're trying to build a relationship here, y'all. The next thing, attachment. How are we handling their attachments, their attachments to us? Are they too attached to us to where we can't leave the room? And it's like the war is going on on the other side of the wall, or is it to the point to where they don't even care if we're around or not, or at least it feels that way because they're not paying attention. How are we dealing with that? How do we deal with that, right? And the final thing, the expectations, what are we expecting from them? Like if your sugar already has this diagnosis, what does this diagnosis mean to you? Does it mean that you feel like it's a life sentence and they're never gonna have a normal life? Well, your your perception and your attitude and disposition is being, you know, carried over to them. And so if you feel that way, what do you think they're going to feel like? So we have to be extremely careful about how we approach a label, how we approach neurodivergence, because a diagnosis of autism doesn't mean that it's a life sentence. It doesn't mean that at all. And even if it's on the more severe side of things, there's always a bright light somewhere and there's beauty in everything. And I've seen it myself. I've seen world changers come through my office and they are just feeling like I have this baby and we have not even bonded at this point. And I don't, I don't even know, like I'm out of ideas. What can we do? And we just tweak the system and we work hard together. And, you know, some months in, I see a different relationship with mom and child, dad and child families in general. And so we really have to check ourselves at the door and think about what this stuff means to us and think about how we perceive 
diagnosis in general and what that means, especially if we don't have a lot of information or we haven't done the research for ourselves. And so I want you guys out there to not only come to grips with the reality, not only for yourself, but also for your sugar. And if this is not something that's going on in your household, for other people who are out in the community, who are living day in and day out, because it's not always the easiest diagnosis to live with. But I'm telling you, I've got some strong world changers out there who are making things happen and they're making their sugar's world a better place by just putting in the work, which in return, sugar comes and meets them at the table. And it's a beautiful thing. So before you give the side eye out in public and you see that little sugar who looks like they're just cutting all the way up, don't get so mad at them. Show them a little grace because here's the, the, the real ring dinger of it all. Our sugars with this diagnosis, in most cases, they don't look like they are atypical. It's not like a diagnosis of Down syndrome to where you can say, oh, okay, there's, there's something else going on there. And so I can kind of excuse it away. This diagnosis, they can look just like everybody else in the family. And again, the neuro wiring is just different and they're relating to the world different. And so Remember, our differences make us unique. And so we have to continue to learn how to embrace those around us, learn what this stuff means so we can all be proactive together. Y'all remember we're a community, we're better together. So I told you guys, this was gonna be a long episode. I am looking at the clock and I'm like, OMG, if I would have tried to do part two, what is now part two today, we would have been up here for another good hour, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> So next week, we're going to have part two of the What Is It series, Autism Spectrum Disorder, and we're going to talk signs and symptoms. I'm going to tool you up on what the signs and the symptoms look like. I went about it the other way around. I didn't want to talk about signs and symptoms first because I didn't want you guys analyzing your sugars and thinking like, oh my gosh, this is happening. Do they have it? Don't they have it? I want you guys to have some understanding first and know what this stuff is and know what it means. So that way, when we look at signs and symptoms, you can say, hey, this relates to me. I need to do something. I need to go talk to my pediatrician or, hey, this does not, but I'm going to take this information and pass it on because somebody else in this world may be dealing. So that's where we are. If you have any questions about this episode or past episodes, please do not hesitate to reach out to me at questions at I've got this or you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Those links are a click away in the show notes. Or you could go to my website at www.iheartspeechtherapy.com. Join our mailing list and become a part of the community. We would be happy to have you here. So until the next time, world changers, take care.